0: Welcome to the Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Nathan Berry. I'm the CEO at ConvertKit. And I'm joined by my co-host, Barrett Brooks. He's the COO here at ConvertKit. And we're on a mission to help creators earn a living. This show is about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. All right, everyone, welcome to episode 76 future belongs to creators. We're here today to answer all of your questions and riff on all of the things that we feel like talking about that have happened in the internet this week. Barrett, what if this just turned into a talk show? It kind of is, but we were talking about a bunch of random tweets and goings on on the internet beforehand. So maybe we could just get into all of that. But first, how you doing? I woke up green because we had thunderstorms overnight,
1: which has cleared the air out to unhealthy levels instead of hazardous levels. (laughs) Things to be thankful for in 2020. Yep. The thunderstorms woke me up and then I was like, okay, the kid's clearly going to wake up. So I might as well just like wait on it. And he never did. Wow. Went back to sleep and woke up to clear air and there's more rain expected. So I am thankful for clearing air, even if it's not clear. Yeah. A lot going on in the business. Some of it's a little bit annoying. A lot of things going on in the market. Some of that's a little bit annoying, (laughs) but uh, I'm going to put on my happy face.
0: How are you doing? I'm pretty good. It's been just kind of a rough week on the home front, the work front, all of that. But just I decided to sleep well last night and it's amazing what a difference that makes. Totally. And like Hillary and I got to hang out yesterday evening because I put him to sleep at eight and at 10 he was still asleep. And I was like, this is amazing. Yep. You know, and so we like played a board game. We drank some wine. We watched a little bit of a movie. You know, it's just like, wow.
1: Life. We're
0: like normal adults. I don't know. <laughs> so that's pretty good. I'm probably green now. What's going on? But things are overall pretty good. Love it. Well, if you're listening live
1: and you don't know what red, yellow, green is, it is a stoplight philosophy gained from our executive coaches from an organization called Reboot. Do it at the start of every episode to share how we're doing. And we ask that if you're listening live, you tell us how you're doing in the chat. So hop on over there, tell us if you're red, yellow, or green and why. Today is Q&A Friday. Just like every, what are we going to do today, Pinky? Try to take over the world. Anyways, every Friday is q a Friday. Shout out to my millennials who got that reference and are old enough to have watched Pinky and the Brain. We have one question pre-submitted from KC Proctor, and I fully expect that we'll get more questions in the chat. Otherwise, you're going to be subject to our mundane interests in the world of creators. So that is my threat to get you to submit your questions. Casey says, how do you reboot a stagnant email list? Is it better to re-engage somehow or blow it up and start from scratch? Hashtag loaded
0: question. <laughs> oh, man. You know, people take both approaches here. And I think like everything, the correct answer is somewhere in the middle. I've seen one approach where people are like desperately trying to breathe life back into something that should have died a long time ago. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there. Like, just let it die. And then there's other times where people are like, oh, this is a new direction. I'm going to blow up the whole thing and move on. And actually some friends of ours have done that. And we've had to convince them to be like, no, you should at least email that list and tell them that you're writing essays every week over here and they're really good and they might want to follow you. The first question is how relevant is the current topic, content, community, all of that to what you're writing about to the original intent of those people who joined the list earlier, right? If it's pretty much the same, then you should definitely try to revive that list. But don't feel bad about clearing off a bunch of people or any of that. What I would do is basically send probably three emails over a little bit of time and say, hey, this is what I've got going on. Here's an example of the great content that I'm putting out now. Maybe here's a quick story of why you haven't heard from me in a long time. Engage with this email. Click the link if you want to stay on the list. If not, on October 1st, I'm going to be cleaning everyone else off the list. and We're going to go to a really engaged community. Have a couple of emails like that, then follow through and clean up the list. The other things that I would do is just make sure that you don't drag it out for too long. Focus on growing a new list. Get people who are really engaged. If you have a list, say, under three to 5,000 subscribers, I'd be targeting a 50% open rate. So as it gets bigger, that number is going to decline. But keep that in mind. You want really engaged people. Focus on the engaged number of subscribers. So open rate times total list size rather than the total list size as you associate your ego with what you create. Just keep that in mind.
1: Yeah. What would you add? Not too much, honestly. I mean, it's not about the number of people on your list. It's about how engaged they are.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That's the summary of my thoughts. And so you can keep the kind of vanity metric of having a certain list size. If that makes you feel better about having a reason to write or create, fine. Just know that the only people that can buy your stuff or read your stuff are the people who open your emails. And so my default approach would probably be like a proactive list pruning is what we call it, approach where I say, hey, about to be writing about this. This is the direction I'm taking. If you don't want that, opt out. Or if you really just want the people who are going to actually engage with you, I would do the opposite. And I would email everyone once and say, if you don't open this, I'm going to remove you from the, or if you don't click this thing or whatever, I'm going to remove you from the list and then just move on with your life. Because when you're in this situation, there is so much more growth in front of you than behind you. I mean, unless you're talking about a list of like a hundred thousand people that you built and then somehow let go stagnant, which I think most people don't do once they're that big, but maybe you did. You know, maybe that warrants a different approach in that kind of case. But I think a lot of times when you're in this scenario, it's because you're still in the early days, You probably have at most a couple thousand subscribers. I know I've had this kind of like stop and start thing at times. I think you have, too. Yeah. And so it's not that big of a loss, even if everyone goes away and you start from scratch because, you know, everything you know now, which is so much more when you're starting again rather than starting for the first time.
0: Yeah. One example I just thought of is, let's say you're transitioning types of content. And in this case, you've been writing about design content for a while, and then you let it go totally stale. And then going forward, you're like, design isn't my passion, I'm going to write about marketing. And so what you might want to do is instead of making that shift suddenly, you might want to write a little bit of transition content. In this case, say you could do a design article about how you designed your new marketing-focused ventures. Right. And I did that some with ConvertKit where in the early days of ConvertKit, you know, I'm switching to talking a lot about marketing and audience building and that kind of thing. But I would still write design content, you know, like here's how I designed the sales page for this. Here's how, you know, I designed the app and that content kind of helped bridge the gap. And let me talk about my new venture in terms of the old one. So I would just keep that in mind. If you're picking something up that you've let go stale, think about what content would bridge the gap. And then the other thing is, if you find yourself in the position where you have a list and it is going stale and it's lingering at the back of your mind, right? It's like that corner of the room or house, whatever that you were planning. You're like, oh yeah, I got to clean that. You keep walking by and you're like, right. I should send an email to that list eventually. You know, I think a great email can be a, here's what's going on, you know, in life and business. And if you were to send that once a quarter, then that can help keep the list warm. If you're like, this is something that I found interesting. Here's the update. Have you ever seen Derek Sivers now page that he encouraged? So Sivers.org slash now or something like that. That's sort of like, here's what's going on. And so imagine sending that of like the holiday letter that you send to the family of, this is what this kid did. This is what's going on in our lives, you know? Send something like that once a quarter to your list and say, here's what I find interesting. Here's what's going on in my life. I don't have regular content for you, but I appreciate you and we'll be in touch soon.
1: Yep, totally. Love it. Emily, as always, coming in with a great question, says, both of you do speaking, how do you prepare for your talks, and how have you grown because of speaking? Oh, interesting.
0: You want to take this one first?
1: Yep, I will. Number one, I have grown. Number two, I think I have grown to the point where speaking is not interesting to me, at least right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe for the first decade of my career, things like speaking on stage, making 30 under 30 lists, maybe especially the first five years of my career, basically doing things that would get me recognition felt very important. Yeah. It felt like that would prove to me that I was on the right path. And then what I realized over time was that there was like less and less correlation between people that I saw being successful and whether they were on stages or whether they were on lists or people that I admired maybe for, for whatever they were achieving. And there was sometimes correlation, but it was not like a one-to-one thing. And the more I realized that, the more I went through speaking engagements on my own, the more I realized, unless I really have something to say, I don't want to spend my time on stages. It's exhausting. It is a lot of work, the travel, the preparation, the getting on the stage, like it's painful. It's worth it when I feel like, man, I got a thing I need to get off my chest or a thing that I feel like is really going to change the way someone in the crowd operates. So I think the biggest probably outlet for this for me over the last couple of years has been crafting and commerce. And then like in between, I'll fill in when we don't have someone on the team that can do a workshop or something like that. And where I've ended up is and I think we both kind of said this. If it's not a keynote, like a main stage keynote in front of at least four or 500 people, I'm probably not going to get on the plane to go do it at this point. So that's kind of like the bookends of how I've grown in my thinking about speaking. My process when I'm on top of my game, like when I really am trying to deliver a great talk, Mm -hmm. is that I'll do a written version first, basically. What am I trying to say? And in that, I'm trying to create hooks. And you'll hear some speaking coaches say, like, imagine hanging a clothes hanger, for example, in one part of the room. That's your first point. And then in the second part of the room, that's your second point. And then the third part of the room, that's your third point. I like that advice because in my mind, it gives me information hierarchy that I am trying to hit these signposts at different times in my talk. And in between, I'm trying to communicate story and moral of the story and proof and things like that. But if I take it in a different order. As long as I'm occupying the appropriate amount of time and I come back to the next point, it's okay to riff a little bit and to kind of go with the flow of the audience. But to start with, I want the very detailed version. I want the like, this is what I intend to say almost to a scripted degree. And then what I wanna do is practice it so that I understand how long it is versus how long I'm going to have, and then practice it and then practice it and then practice it. And usually about the third or fifth time, I'll record it and watch it. And I know I've practiced enough when I do it in the right amount of time and I don't feel like I was trying to recite the written version. I feel like I was giving the talk based on my inherent knowledge and comfort with the topic, which is where it's coming from to begin with, to the time frame that I had. And from there, I start thinking about little things. What am I gonna wear, number one? How can I dress to embody the thing that I'm trying to get across to the audience that I'm trying to get it across to? For example, like five or seven years ago, I sat on a panel with the chief people officer of Coca-Cola at an HR executive conference about managing millennials at work. And so there I wore like a suit Mm -hmm. or maybe I wore a jacket and jeans to communicate part of my point that I was trying to make about managing millennials at work. But at Craft & Commerce, I feel much more comfortable. I have like two looks. I have the professional opening day look, and then I have the like hip creator reflect my personality look that I go for on the second day, because that's much more kind of reflective of the audience. And then little things like, can I put a joke here? Can I reorder how I tell something to have a greater impact? Yada, yada. So that's my best. And then when I'm at my worst, I'm like making the slides 24 hours ahead of time and just trying to get through it. And that usually only works when it's something like a workshop where the pressure is a little lower. People are trying to learn functional knowledge versus be inspired, things like that. Yeah. That's the long answer. Anything to add there, Nathan? That's all good stuff.
0: The first thing with Emily's question of like, what's your process for preparing for talks? I was laughing when you said it because my process, at least for crafting commerce talks, is I like make a really loose outline of what I want to say, and then I get coffee with you or on a Zoom call with you. (laughs) And I say it to you and you go, okay, okay. And you like take a few notes and then you go, okay. So what I hear you saying is, and then you you reflect it back and I transcribe that and then I deliver it on stage. And that's my process. So step one is find a Barrett in your life. But, you know, we joke, but that's actually legitimately what we've done for two or three crafting conferences, pretty much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and then I go and craft the stories and put it in. But like, that's how I often get to that overall narrative. And so often it's helpful to go do the initial work go try to deliver it to someone who someone's going to give you good feedback and going to be like okay but what is the point the one point that you're trying to leave people with right and who's going to try to pull it out of you mm-hmm. that works super well I would highly recommend it and the earlier in the process you do that the more time you'll save yourself like if you're spending time designing the perfect slide and keynote and then you're like oh that has nothing to do with the point I'm trying to leave the audience with then you're going to save yourself a bunch of effort couple things that have really helped me one short talks I really like 20 minute talks maybe 25 if we're pushing it, you can actually rehearse that and you can nail your timing in that. In an hour long talk, you can't, like how many times do? It's so hard. <laughs> like, How often are you going to run through that? Twice, maybe at most, but a 20 minute talk, you could run through six, eight, 10 times beforehand because say you're speaking on a second or third day of the conference and you show up at the hotel and you're like, okay, speaker's dinner is coming up in 45 minutes, do a little bit of email and then run through the talk. You come back from dinner. Oh, let me do like a quick run through the talk and get through all of those. So short is always good. I use it to try out personal stories. And I found that stories that I want to use to illustrate something can work really, really well, especially if I can find some old family photo or something like that to get the audience hooked in. A photo of me at 10 years old or something, and then to try to tell a story around that. One other little pro tip that my friend David Nihil told, told me this, and it's always stuck with me. And every time I do it, I'm like, it's so good. Q&A does not belong at the end of your talk. And when I learned this, I was like, whoa, this is incredible. Because if you put Q&A at the end of your talk, then you are leaving that lasting, like that last moment, that last impression, just totally to chance roll of the dice. And when you look at an audience of say three or 400 people, just imagine like closing your eyes and pointing around and be like, and you get the conclusion. Yeah. You know? don't like you would never do that, but that's what Q and A is. And so what you do instead is conclude your talk in one section, say, okay, now we're going to take questions. And then I'm going to come back with one final thought. What happens is it keeps people's interest because they're like, okay, but what's the, what's the final thought? It gives you permission to interrupt anyone because it's not questions up until the top of the hour. It's like, okay, we're doing questions now, but like I've still got more material. Mm-hmm. And so if someone asks a super long, drawn out question, you can be like, okay, I appreciate that, but like we got <laughs> to move along. And then what happens is if you end, like if you get a bad question to end on, then that's okay. You can wrap that up and then go, okay, now here's the last thing I want to end on. James Clear has an article titled Start Before You Feel Ready from years ago. That's one that I've used pretty often of like a final call to action to inspire that. Or like Sean McCabe talking about show up every day for two years. You know, one of those things that really hits home the point that I'm talking about and does it in a lasting, impactful way. Yeah. That's all I got there.
1: The only other thing I'd say in terms of growth is I've learned what is bad stress and what is good stress and the difference between the two. And I've just learned my cycle of stress or anxiety or preparedness, whatever you want to refer to it as that comes with preparing for getting ready to go on stage delivering and then kind of the like adrenaline drop off afterwards. Mm-hmm. I've learned to tolerate that a lot better as a result. So like I don't over caffeinate before I talk, I try and drink a lot of water, I try and eat a meal, even if I'm feeling kind of like anxious in my stomach, so that the like drop off in energy is not so steep after I get off stage. Sometimes I'm better at that than others. But yeah, anyways, just from a physical body management standpoint.
0: Yep. All right. Casey asks, do you have any examples of a creator being acquihired, hired by a bigger company to become the face of the company from a social media and content marketing angle?
1: Oh, man. We're going to do a whole episode on some of this on Monday, I think, Casey. Yeah. We have a team retreat next week, so we got to figure out if we're doing it on Monday. But right now, Joe Rogan and Spotify, I think, is is an example of this. I think Cortland Allen and Stripe, to a, a much smaller degree, yep. running indie hackers as a property of Stripe is an example of this. I mean, in some ways, like this is what signature shoe deals are. Right. Kanye and Adidas is this LeBron and Nike. There's like a lot of examples where sometimes it's not all the way like actually hired, like Joe Rogan is on a contract for $100 million or whatever it is that they didn't disclose. He's not an employee now. Yeah, he's got a contract that's a link that's like a sports contract. Man, there's so many things that come with this. So let's just dive in on the Joe Rogan thing for a second, which we'll get into more later. Yesterday on an episode, he parroted this idea that Antifa activists were the ones who started the wildfires here in Oregon, where I live. And he parlayed an article about a man who started a couple of fires outside homes that did not spread in one small town. And he was not associated with Antifa. So he read that article and then he saw the claims on social media and he thought those were the same things. Right. And so he said on his podcast with however many millions of listeners, Antifa is starting wildfires in Oregon and it's their fault. Well, He's not independent anymore. And so, you know, who had something to say about that was Daniel Eck and the whole Spotify team. Who's like, listen, we love you. We love the idea of who you are. I don't know how this actually went, but this is how I imagine it went. I love the idea of who you are. And we bought contract material for that. And also, you can't say shit like that anymore now that you're under contract with us. Right? Go apologize. I like to imagine Joe Rogan being like, F you. I own you. You don't own me. And then he went and apologized <laughs> But it's just interesting when you see these deals happen and it it definitely changes the dynamic.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's very interesting. So I think this also ties into the billion dollar blog post from earlier that we talked about on Monday. Some of these acquisitions might work because you have a higher quality product, not in that the individual product is higher quality, but that it has a better quality business model behind it than the person that you're hiring or acquiring, right? Because if they're selling digital courses and you're selling physical products, which is what's happening in Casey's case, you're like, look at my lifetime value. Look at what can happen here? And so the upside is way bigger. In Joe Rogan's case, Spotify is looking at it and going, we have a free product that gets incredible reach. We have the highest or one of the highest free to paid conversion rates in the industry. It's over 30% of free Spotify users convert to paid. And so they're like, okay, Joe Rogan's selling advertising that has one level of upside. We're selling, you know, one of the largest music, you know, and streaming platforms on the internet. Like we have a level of upside far beyond that. And so we can afford to pay what seems like a crazy premium to bring him on. So I love looking for those examples where the upside is totally different. And if you run with Cortland Allen with indie hackers being acquired by Stripe, if you think about for Stripe, what would it take for them to build the community that like really... It's not the forum, it's not any of these things, but that really connects with and gets indie hackers, you know, and, and uh, the Collison brothers were that in the early days. But there's a point where you're running a 3000 person company and you're like, no, 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 but we're still like hackers and coders. And they're like, uh-huh, sure. You know, but Cortland could do that. And so they're like, OK, let's let's buy that in and, and let's make it happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. The economics and all of it are fascinating. And, and just one thing, you know, to know as a creator is that if a company is offering you a deal, it's because they think they can make more off of you than the deal, right? To be clear. And so you are leaving money on the table. And the question is just, do you believe that you can execute? to the point of earning more money than the contract. right? And I think a lot of times creators sign these deals that lock them in for a long time that I think sometimes they can end up regretting because they don't see a clear path to earning more than that. And so there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I think sometimes you have to do that calculus. Do I have the the business chops to earn more than this? And therefore it's a short-term solution to a problem I have, or is this the best option for earning right now that I have? And then that buys me more time to figure out another path later. Yeah. So anyways, they're really complex, these deals, in terms of the calculus.
0: Yeah. And if I was on the receiving end of being offered that deal, what I would think about is what unique advantages does that company have to be able to monetize my brand and my content better than I can. You know, so we'll use an example from ConvertKit's history. Back in 2016, our good mutual friend, Daryl Westerfeld, was running an independent agency, doing a lot of work with content creators and all of that. And that was sort of an aqua hire to when we brought him onto ConvertKit of basically bringing his agency on, his team. And he ran growth for ConvertKit for two years. And we had exactly that. We could pay quite a bit more. And it was very worth it to us because we had this upside that a services business didn't have. And so he was able to join us, I think in the first year that he was running growth, the company grew from 100K a month to 500K a month. And so he had this crazy upside, equity, all of that, and it worked out really well. Mm-hmm. And then when he was ready to move on to the next thing, he was able to, and we parted ways in a great way. So actually, maybe that's another good point, is going in and talking about either side of this deal that you're on, maybe talking about how it may not last forever and that's Okay of like, we can come together and create something really great for a period of time, whether it's a new shoe brand or the podcast promoting Spotify or whatever else. And then we can part ways. You know I mean? That's why these sports deals are like, this is a two-year contract. Yeah, This is a four-year contract because they're not like, look, if you leave the trailblazers, we're going to be crushed forever and we'll never be friends. No, we're going to come together. We're going to do great things and then we're going to part ways. Right.
1: Yeah, totally. It's fascinating. I think we're going to get into more of this and just kind of our ideas on how creators can think about monetizing their own brands rather than selling that brand to a company. So more to come on that. Obviously, if you're listening and you have more questions, just submit in the chat. We'll answer them. That we could riff on a couple of topics before we wrap up for the day. So his first thing is Keaton Shaw, great guy, founder of a couple of great businesses, you know, really pays attention to what's going on in the software world. Respect the hell out of him. He tweeted last night a dagger to my heart. <laughs> Not really. I'm just kidding. But I'm like interested to discuss this in a little bit in public just because it annoys me on one level, but on another level, I respect it. And so he said, Substack has single handedly made newsletters the new blogs. And then another guy that we respect who works at Stripe, actually, Patrick McKenzie, quote tweeted him and said, you know, a typically Patrick worded thing, which was something like, you know, a product is great when they change creator behavior, when they change user behavior as a part of existing. Right. And I read this thing and I was like, man, it really annoys me. This is one of the first truly Silicon Valley Y Combinator, Andreessen Horowitz funded companies that has been in the email marketing game. And now all of a sudden, all of San Francisco and Silicon Valley thinks that newsletters are new, number one. Two, that they're like the greatest thing since sliced bread. And three, that they're the next massive opportunity for creators. Like, is this serious? Are you kidding? Or are you just like behind the curve? Or what is the point you're making? MailChimp has millions of customers. Now, it's a different kind of email marketing for a lot of those customers. Right. But there are hundreds of thousands of high-quality newsletters across the web, most of them not even remotely powered by a new entrant to the market, and most of them have never even heard of it. And so it's, it's just fascinating to me how newness, especially for those early adopter type people, is such a factor and how VC can play such a role in the burst through the doors of the, I think of it like coming into the saloon, guns blazing kind of thing of a new company that they funded because they have all of the interest in it to make that happen. But anyways, I thought we'd get into like, why has that happened? Why are newsletters having a a renaissance? And like, to what degree do we think that maybe Substack has played a role in that? Mm -hmm. Are we benefiting? Like, what role have we played? Just some of that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Oh man, I have so many thoughts on this. And so it's fun to talk about it in public. The first thing is we've talked a lot on the show about echo chambers and how it can be so important to create an echo chamber to get that early momentum. And I think that's something that's worked really well here for Substack in that VC, I would say the the startup and journalism communities. Yeah. You know, the overlap between those circles, they have owned that and they've made it feel like that is the biggest thing ever. Now you go beyond that, you know, out into the much broader space. And you know, I think a lot of people would have no clue what that is right we were playing around with google trends which we use quite a bit just to get a feel for a pulse of what's going on in a company or trends over time and we're looking at us and active campaign and substack and we're all like trending in here and then you threw mailchimp onto the thing and it pushes all of our lines down to the point where they just Barely register, and the mailchimp dominates everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you have to keep in mind that even when we feel like, like someone tweeted the other day, every link I click on is a ConvertKit link, and we're like, yay! In that circle, we're doing great. Right? You know, I could just imagine Ben Chestnut being like, oh, that's so cute. We have thirty million users. You know, and they have a 100, 150,000 or whatever. So it's another lesson for creators that echo chambers really, really matter. You know, they matter on the tiny scale of should I target just this little group, and they matter on getting a platform off the ground. So they've done that. Well.
1: Yeah, it's almost a really valuable growth lever as a creator, as a business of owning of specific segment of a market. And this is the whole idea of niching down is if you can make it seem like you are everywhere to a certain group of people, you become the obvious choice. Right. And so that's the the kind of takeaway there. But keep going.
0: Well, the other thing that I was thinking is I kind of had the same experience that the Substack crew had, I imagine, of showing up and being like, social platforms, it's how we make sales, blah, blah, blah. Oh, oh email is important. Sure, I'll, you know, I'll try email as well. Whoa, did you guys realize that email is driving more sales than every other platform combined? And I have one friend in particular who's been in online marketing since the early 2000s. And I was telling him this and he's like, yes, we've all known this since 2001. Like, what, <laughs> what are you doing? And here I am in 2011 being like, this is the greatest thing ever. And he's just like, okay, I'm so glad you discovered this. I don't know. Like welcome to the party. Yeah. And so that's kind of that same experience where now I'm getting to watch it where we've been preaching this for so long. And then you get more people coming in and realizing the power of it. And what's so funny is that it's a lot of the same people that or the same communities that a few years earlier were like email is dead.
1: And creators are a joke, you know, or like all these little indie people over here, they don't matter. But now they are those people. And it's like, this is the greatest thing ever. And it's like, yes, you're right. It's just that is anyone calling out the hypocrisy of this? Like, come on. Yes. Get on board. We welcome you. Come on in. It's nice over here. And also, hey, do you remember that before you were the one writing the newsletter that you were like, look at these jokers over here who couldn't make it in the corporate or VC world? They had to go independent and write a new newsletter. Well, how sad. And now they're like the ones writing the newsletters. I just find it ironic and kind of joyful
0: in a way. Right. I mean, that's where you'd be like, oh, that's a great lifestyle business that you have there. Right. You know, <laughs> so there's that whole side of it of like, okay, you know, when you watch someone come around to your perspective and it on one hand, it's validating. And on the other hand, it's like kind of annoying. But then the other side is like really trying to dive in and be like, okay, why did this work? Right. If you have this, there's dozens of email platforms out there. And then you've got all of the social platforms. And then you've got like Medium and Quora and all of these. And two years ago, Medium was on this crazy upswing. And I actually thought that Medium had like my perception was that Medium was dying out. Ev Williams came out with a tweet. They came out with an update article a month ago or something that was basically showed Medium's traffic and they're just like absolutely crushing it. So it's interesting the public narrative versus what's happening behind the scenes. But one thing, I guess there's a combination of things. Medium nailed the fantastic writing, easy publishing experience and that like Thought leadership of if you publish the article on Medium, it had a reputation already. You know, if you saw Medium in the URL, you're probably like, oh, this is going to be a thoughtful, meaningful article. Mm-hmm. But the problem was that, you know, you didn't own your audience. And so Substack managed to pull off that combination of owning your audience, which is what we've always advocated for, that like thought leadership, you know, kind of brand side of things, and the really, really easy content experience of up and running really quickly for that use case. And I think that last one is the biggest takeaway that we need to pay attention to. Yeah. As we've built a tool that serves so many different types of creators, it can actually be harder to set up because it's like, well, what type of thing do you want to set up? Whereas Substack is like a newsletter. You can set up anything you want, so long as it's a newsletter and it looks exactly like this, Yeah, which makes it very streamlined. And so I think the work that we have cut out for ourselves is, one, showing all the examples of all the largest newsletters on the web, whether it's Farnham Street or James Clear, or Gretchen Rubin or Tim Ferriss or whoever, like they run on ConvertKit. Right. So showcasing that, that's really important. And then the other thing is making sure that that I have an idea to I have published content and my first couple of fans is as streamlined as possible. And I think the competition is really healthy for making sure that that happens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The other two insights I've had about it is there's always going to be new entrance to a market, Right always. And newness combined with solving a pain point that exists in the market, which gets to the point you were just making, creates word of mouth momentum. We're seeing this with a couple of other new entrants to the market as well. And what that does is it creates this initial push, right, of people adopting it. And I think the pandemic has made this even more true because people don't have commutes, they don't have in-person distractions. And so I think Substack said online that they had grown 60% in the first 90 days of the pandemic which we saw similar growth because people were like, Oh no, I better market online. Cause I don't have any in-person stuff left. But when you have new entrants, you kind of just have to weather that storm mm-hmm. as an existing business and know that they're going to hit similar growing pains that we've hit in a variety of ways. Right. And so some of it is weathering the storm and some of it is also studying the insight behind the business and understanding what was broken. If there is anything broken about our product or business that we should better serve as a result of that, that's on one end of the market. On the, other end, we started working with a brand agency we're really excited about. And as we were going through the process of finding a partner, all of them said the same thing. They're like, look, y'all have an incredible product. Like everyone that talks about you is so happy with you. You clearly are the leader in the creator space. You know, if you just look at that piece of the email market, you're just getting outspent by competitors. They're just spending to be where you aren't. And so if you want to grow in a competitive market for the people you're for, you would just have to spend to be where the creators are so that you're pushing these other people who aren't designed for creators out of the viewing angle of the people you're trying to serve. I found that really insightful. It makes obvious sense, right? Right. But as a bootstrap company, you got to get to where you have enough cash to even do that. You know, with a VC-backed company, you can just flood the market for a period of time and hope that that leads to growth. We have to be way more disciplined and intentional about where we use that money to get out in front of the creator communities that we're built for.
0: Absolutely. The other thing that I would say is it's always interesting to watch the difference between the public perception and what's going on behind the scenes. And I think that was the example from Medium, you know, of I had such a strong perception that they were getting completely dominated by Substack. Mm -hmm. And then you come see and they have just as strong of a hockey stick growth curve as Substack does. And you're like, okay, so is it the hot new thing or is it that all of these things are going? And then I think the last thing that I saw is this whole ecosystem is growing like crazy. Even if it takes a platform like Quora, I think of them because I don't use them very much anymore. I think of them as dying out and you look at their numbers and they're doing absolutely fantastic. And so you realize like, okay, this really is a rising tide and we'll continue to keep creating better and better experiences for content to be written, published, discovered, get in the hands of the people that want it.
1: Yeah. You also just think about cherry picking the data that makes it look good for all these businesses and what you publish publicly. Like if you took our cumulative users over time Mm -hmm. right now, or total subscribers in our customer base or email sent as an indicator of activity, right. You know, up to the moon over the past nine months, because the whole internet, the whole economy actually has gone digital way faster than it was already. And so any business that's online has just been hammering email. Email, 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 because that's the lifeline. That's where the money's coming from. And when that's the only option you have, you better get to it. And so it'll be really interesting to see when we come on the other side of this pandemic, what is new normal, you know, in terms of how the economy operates in person versus online and how much people continue to rely on email and other digital tools.
0: Yeah. Oh, I have so many more thoughts there, but I think that's a good place to leave it for now. Yep. We'll do future episodes diving into what we think about the Joe Rogan Spotify deal and acquisitions and, and all of that, both from our own side of the things we've considered and what it means for the broader creative community and everything else. It's probably a good length of show. We'll skip resources and creators for today. And are are we doing a show on Monday? We're doing our team retreat on Monday.
1: Let me look at the calendar and just see whether that slot is open or whether it's occupied by team retreat. We're trying a digital retreat for the first time ever. We have that time period open. So I declare there will be a show on Monday. All right. And it will be about Joe Rogan, Joe Budden and other deals like that online with all the new creator
0: platforms. I love it. Tell your friends, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. All right, that's it for us for today. Thanks for hanging out. It's great to see some new faces in the chat. Bye, y'all. We'll see y'all around. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you didn't pick it up from the show, we make a tool called ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. If you want to give ConvertKit a try, you can go to landingpage.new. To launch your next creative project. You'll be able to build a landing page and send emails for up to 500 subscribers totally for free. So again, that's landingpage.new. You can get started with your free ConvertKit account today.